Pray with me if you would, please. It's really wonderful to see you all this evening. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to sit in this building tonight and to seek your face. What do we expect tonight for you to do amazing work? And Lord, I am so thankful that tonight in this building you're going to that we're going to encounter, every one of us, we're going to encounter you. The question is not whether you're going to be here to be encountered. The question is whether or not tonight uh, we're ready. We're going to put our hearts and minds in the right place to do so. So please, Lord, tonight, have your way. Genuinely minister to us, I pray. In your name. Amen. Hey, Nate. That light keeps blinking back there, and that sometimes means somebody's outside ringing a doorbell, which means maybe a door is locked. Would you check that? Thank you. Perhaps you've heard the stories of someone going to the doctor, and the physician checks all of the symptoms, and from the symptoms makes a prognosis, a diagnosis, and then starts to treat the diagnosis only to find that the, di- the, the diagnosis was actually wrong and they were actually fighting the wrong thing. It becomes a real problem that sort of putting an L for left or R for right and putting the wrong, cutting off the wrong thing, amputating the wrong thing, removing the wrong thing, because it really wasn't the problem. I guess it was. Thank you, Jamie, for doing that, by the way. And I know some of you have heard the story, but to put context to this, of a friend of mine who was a, a pastor of a, a bit more of a theatrical fellowship than ours, and I mean that in no derogatory manner, and how he had met this girl that was very subtle and quiet, and he fell in love with her, and they got married. <clears throat> As they got married, she had saved herself, which is a beautiful thing for her husband, so she had never actually been in a in a room alone with a man before and this is her first experience and on that night they had let him door this isn't going to get very dicey but he he looks over and as he wakes up in the middle of the night he sees this horrible floating head this ugly scary horrible floating head by his feet him being from a much more charismatic background of course his first assumption is and not that you know again i'm not trying to speak in a, in a negative tone for that he assumes it's a demon, so he's quietly, and again, it's his first night alone with this girl, and he, and he just starts quietly says, in the name of Jesus, Satan, flee, in the name of Jesus, Satan, flee, and it will not go away. And it seems to mock him as he speaks at it. So, what do you do when that doesn't seem to work? Well, you get a little louder, you get a little bit more intense, you get a little bit more meaningful. And he finally gets to the point where he jumps up and he screams, in the name of Jesus, Satan, flee! That, that should do it. And of course, this poor girl, subtle and quiet, completely in over her head, just turns on the light and turns out that there was a mirror at the footboard. This horrible, ugly, floating head that he was trying to cast out of the room was his own. That's what he saw in the middle of the night between his feet. Now, the point of it was this, is that he had clearly seen something that was clearly a problem, and it clearly scared him. And as a result of that, he clearly went into battle mode. The problem was, is what he was trying to fight really wasn't the real problem. In chapters 5, 6, and 7, and 8, if you will, of the book of Joshua, we're going to see three very predominant, very clear battles. Now, I might have said it this way. We'll see three very clear altercations. They are battles. They may just be easy to not see as, well, the first two, clearly. But the the third one, maybe you won't see it as the battle it is. And I really believe God did this on purpose. He could have just said, let's go in, let's fight. And he could have recorded Joshua as, Joshua went, let the people in. And they fought everybody in and culminative, you know. Corporately, he goes and takes them all down. And then in the end of it all, here's a list of all the people. So in case you have your wife read, like I do at night, you'd say this chapter is yours, honey, because she didn't see it coming. Well, there's my confession, by the way. But that's not what God did. And if you're anything like me, I genuinely believe if God put it in Scripture, there's a foreign purpose to it. So there are three very distinct battles, if you will. The first we'll be seeing tonight. 
There will be another battle then following, next week, God willing, where we'll see, to be honest, if I can give a, slur, a slight, rented lips, if I can give a slight sort of a spoiler alert, they're going to lose at first. This first battle, by the way, we're going to see victory, but the second battle, it really doesn't start out real well. And it really seems like a very unformidable foe. And then the third battle will be such a different kind of battle altogether that uh, it won't even seem like a battle at all. And that's important to recognize. Now, as we go through these battles, and what we covered last week, by the way, and it was important to kind of get there first, is we kind of covered four very, very crucial steps to being prepared for the battle. And I cannot stress it enough because we're going to see it demonstrated in every victory and we're going to see something missing in every defeat. It told us, by the way, if we remember, that the first thing we saw was that once they've crossed the Jordan, they consecrated. They sought to consecrate. In this case, the second generation was circumcised. But the idea of it was to set yourself apart unto God. Not just set yourself apart. Because if you just decide, the way that I think I'm going to consecrate myself, you don't consecrate yourself for God. You consecrate yourself to God. And that's very different. Because if you're, all you're trying to do is actually try to be defined by what you don't do, you may not know that you do anything at all. And that, what happens as a result of that is you find yourself feeling like God owes you something because now you're lonely, now you don't do the things that you thought were fun because you've not traded them in for anything, you've just handed them over with nothing in exchange. Versus, God, I want to hand these things over to you, and God, now you fill those holes with something you've designed instead. So we start by consecrating. And then the second was from to consecrate was to communicate. We communicate. We seek the Lord for his guidance. Lord, let my heart and my mind and my ears be ready to hear what it is that you want to tell me. Because chances are the way God's going to want us to handle the battle will be extremely different than the way that we would handle it otherwise. I'm a natural fighter. <clears throat> I'm, I mean, I was raised in a mindset where, man, if there's opposition, it's like there is a button inside of me, like adrenaline is on demand. And it's like, and it's taken me a, quite a while. I just say it didn't take the Lord as much. I just fought him in it because I fought him too. Uh, you know, in regards to when, whether that was a verbal confrontation, whether that was a doctrinal issue, or whether that was just somebody that just seemed to have a problem. And I tell you, the Lord has made miracles of this. My family's never seen me at the place where I've ever been. Praise God for that. Yesterday, one of the first days since I've been here this year, I actually put on flip-flops. I actually prefer flip-flops, but I don't wear them in the city for obvious reasons. For the things you could step in and for the things that could step on you. But just the same, it seemed like it was going to be a warm day. Hey, let's throw on some flip-flops. And off I go, and I'm on my way to the Bible study yesterday, and a, a very large Greek man just pushes through the crowd of people waiting on the side of the street for the, for the green guy, if that makes sense. And he jumps, and the poor man lands on both of my feet. It isn't like the guy stepped on a toe. It's like he stepped on every toe I had, and if I had more, he would have stepped on those too. And then, the, and to me, okay, that's, that's one thing. But you ever have this happen where someone does something like this? They poke you with a stick, they hit you with something, and then they turn around and look at you like you were the problem? You know, they look at you like, I can't believe you stuck your toes there. And it's at those kind of moments I am reminded of what Jesus has done in my life. My wife was one of the most nonviolent people I've ever met in my life. Uh, here's one of those great stories you can ask her one of those days. In the middle of the night one night, she rolled over and punched me in the face while she was sleeping. And that was bad enough. Then she laughed. <laughs> and went back to sleep. Finally, I was like, what was that about? She would tell me. Well, I was, had this crazy dream of these cheerleaders at my old high school, my old secondary school that wanted to change the mascot, and I didn't like it, so I punched him in the face. I'm like, I was the cheerleader, you punched in the face. And she said, and then I laughed because it was such a strange idea. I'm like, yeah, it's those moments when you realize God has taken that out of me. Because that would not have ended in a, that would have ended in a very different way and not ended well had that been the person I was before Jesus. 
And the reason I say that is, it's, there is a natural way we are inclined to respond to a situation which may not always be God's, God's way of handling it. Clearly, I guarantee you, Joshua, as a soldier, would not have thought up this idea for taking down Jericho. So we consecrate, we communicate with God, not talk at God, we listen to, and then we congregate. Once the Lord has spoken, we gather people that we trust around us, the people that are actually directly related to the battle, if you will, and say, let's, I, need, I need your help, let's stand together on this thing and let's move forward. And then finally, we initiate. Let's, get, let's do it. Let's not just think this is what God wants and then wait for someone else to do it. Let's get up and do it now. Well, with these battles to face, now we see our first one. Take a look at it with me now. We're going to go back for a bit of review, but just to kind of get our way into it. And now we're again at Joshua chapter 6. Let's just start with verse 1. <clears throat> the angel has spoken. This is his message to Joshua. This is the plan for the most fortified city in all of today's Israel. The Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. No one went out. No one came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, notice it's the Lord speaking here. See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go around the city once. This you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn. And when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, then the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, every man straight before him. Now, Joshua has to tell this. Which one of you wants to volunteer to be Joshua here? You have to tell your army. And I remind you, in essence, the men who fought prior to this point, who have decent military experience, have all died in the wilderness, except for you and Caleb, who's 83, 85 years old. So you've got to tell a bunch of lackeys, a bunch of boots, a bunch of recruits. You have to tell them, this is the way we fight. It's a seven-day process. Six of the days, you walk around the city once while some priests blow ram's horns. That's it. Don't say a word. And you go, well, I don't see any hand-to-hand combat in that. You're like, yeah. I'll tell you where the battle is. The battle is trust. That's where your battle is. You're going to have to trust God, especially when it doesn't make sense. I don't know about you. I want my life full of miracles. But I never want to be at a place where I need one. Because if I need one, that means I'm desperate. If I need one, that means that I can't cute my way, think my way, smart my way, plan my way, fight my way out of it. I have to get to the point where I am, I have to admit, I am incapable of solving this problem. Who wants to be there? Who wants to admit they're addicted? Who wants to admit they're defeated? Who wants to admit they're outgunned, outclassed, out whatever? Who wants to admit that? And in a moment like that, you would think, all right, God, I did what you expected. Come on in on your right steed and just start kicking some serious touch. But rather, God has this fun with us. And this is two things I've learned. And I can understand this is not me being Grandpa PT here. But just hear me out. One thing I've learned is that God has this habit of letting your opposition get to the point where it's so darn big where you really have to admit you can't do this. And you wonder, God, why aren't you handling this? Because it has to get to the point where you are sure you couldn't have calmed that storm. You couldn't have taken down that Goliath. Well, you couldn't have stood against that army. But before that point, you could have. God says, wait, you still have too many people, Gideon. I want it down to 300. Let's get it down to 300. So it's about 140, 1400 to 1. That seems like a decent odd. You're like, well, that's impossible. And that's the word that God wants. 
Not that we look at it without faith, but what we say is, if you remove God from the equation, it's impossible. That's the point. It's amazing. Even when it is impossible without God, and then God steps in to do the impossible, then we still try to take credit for it. What is wrong with us? Nobody should believe us for good reason. So if it really is in the realm of the miraculous, and you are one of those brilliant commentators that are 3,000 miles and 2,000 years removed, and you're trying to explain this thing out, you're really going to sound, maybe you sound smart to men, but you sound like an idiot to God. Because in the end of it all, the only answer is God. I mean, you listen to people, and they're like, well, I've done a lot of series of, you know, of sound and acoustics and critical band and white noise conditions and sound waves, and I just know that everything has a natural resonance, and if you've got enough men to go, ah, everything's going to fall down, good luck with that. And they say, well, what's your answer, smarty pants? And I say, God. God didn't need them to shout to take down the walls. God wanted them to shout so they could obey. Are you aware of the fact that when God makes you obey, when God calls you to obey, He's not going to make you obey in a way or challenge you to obey in a way that you're not going to feel like a complete imbecile except for the fact that God stepped in. That's why we don't want to do something, right? You see somebody and they're, and they're not well and you are like, you know, you hear, the, you hear the Lord prompting you inside saying, you need to go and lay hands and pray for that person. And it's cool until that moment. But then you're like, but what happens if I lay hands and they don't get well? As if somehow the issue is not our concern for them. Now our concern is over whether they think we're an, we're an idiot for it. God, what if you fail? God, what if he was like, but I'm the one who told you, God would say. And you know what, let me just say this. If I find myself with some life-threatening disease, I find myself battling something terminal, or even doesn't even have to be that, I'm just really sick, and you want to come and you're questioning whether you should lay hands on me, can I just say, do it? Because even if I don't get better, I will be blessed by the fact that one, you're seeking to be obedient, second, you care enough to do so. Hey, you know, if you lay hands on me and I'm like, well, okay, nothing better, I would still be blessed by the fact that you cared enough to try. That you risked it. Where is that risk it? That takes faith. So God's plan has to make no sense scientifically, make no sense militarily, if I can use such a word, makes no sense from any form of precedent. We have no precedent of screaming for walls to fall down. We have no precedent of, well, let's just do some kind of crazy psychological warfare and let's walk around once every six days so they get all freaked out. They're already scared. Why don't we just fight them while they're scared? See, what God did is he demanded for us to obey. And that took trust. And you know what? Can I just say... Submission, that should be, if you will, the step, or if you will, the, the twin brother of faith. We might say obedience. Submission isn't submission until you disagree. Consider it. If somebody just says, here's a bunch of things I'd like you to do, but you wanted to do them anyways, you could look really good for doing that. It's the moment you disagree where submission is shown. So we're like, God, I trust you. But what we're really saying often is, God, I trust you as much as I can understand you. What we're really saying is, God, I trust me or my understanding, and as long as you're in line with that, I'm cool to follow you. The moment you're like, God, I don't get this. I can't calm the storm. I can't take down a ten and a half foot fella. I can't fight such a huge army with 300 guys. And God's like, did I ever say you needed to? God, I can't have a baby. I've not been near a guy. With man, this is impossible. We can agree. But with God, nothing is impossible. Mary, do you agree with me? Gideon, do you agree with me? Moses, do you really think the magic's in your stick? You really think if somebody else took that stick and waved it enough, locusts could come or frogs could come flying out or whatever? You really think the magic's in your stick? But people will worship the stick, won't they? 
And the reason I say that is when God gives this information to Joshua, I want you to realize he hasn't read beyond this chapter. It hasn't been written because he hasn't lived it yet. And you have not read your chapters either. And chances are in this room right now, God is speaking to every one of us and saying, get ready because I'm going to say something in your mind crazy. Overwriting your logic. And you're like, well, does that mean God wants me to just do crazy stuff? Because I can do crazy stuff. And God's like, I'm not asking you to do crazy for crazy. I'm asking for you to trust me beyond. And here's the beauty of faith. I don't have to understand it's for me to, t- to trust God. What I have to do is hear Him clearly. And if God really wants to speak to us, isn't it His responsibility to communicate? I do like that, by the way. There are nights I walk to go evangelize. And actually, I shouldn't even say that. There are nights I just call available nights. God and I go on a date and He can do whatever He wants. And I walk the streets. And I say, Lord, I'm, I'm whatever you want today. Some of those nights, I can't take a step without sharing with someone, and I turn and I share with someone else. There are other nights where I don't speak to another person except God. Which one of those nights is a greater failure? The answer is neither. If I'm available, the issue is not what I do for God, it's being available to God. And there are nights where it's like, I don't want to go, oh God, this was a total waste. I mean, I didn't do anything. God's like, you hung out with me the whole night. How exactly is that a failure? Because the point is being with him. So here's God and he's speaking and he's saying, listen, Joshua, I have this crazy call on you. But notice, by the way, God makes no apologies. Have you noticed that? It isn't like God's like, he doesn't massage or rub the alcohol before he takes the jab. He's like, listen, here's the plan. He doesn't go, excuse me, but Danielle, I just want you to know this is going to be a little bit crazy. So kind of brace yourself. He doesn't do any of that. He just says, here's the plan. As far as God's concerned, it's as sane as any other plan. And you're kind of listening going, huh, what? So let me see I have this right. We're going to take the ark where your presence is supposed to be kind of between the, you know, on the mercy seat between the angels and uh, between the, the, the cherubim. And we're just going to have a bunch of like, we're going to like do some like Dixieland or something on the way. And we're going to kind of play some Miles Davis on the way around. And, and we're going to have some people. And the rest of us, we can't even talk. We're just going to kind of, is that right? And the horns, the word they're blowing, it isn't like they have like, you know, they're not like they change an awful lot of tones or, or they're like really rhythmic. It isn't, you know, think of it as a bunch of car horns. It isn't like, you know, you ever heard a car horn solo? Actually, in Greece, I think I have heard that. But for the most places, otherwise, it's just like you just went along, you know, that kind of thing. And it's like, okay, so you're going to do that, and then everyone come back to the camp. Now, here's the thing. Maybe the first day, I mean, we would be freaked out a little bit, right? Because I would think, I'm going to get shot. I don't like, okay, I, I can't even fire a weapon, I can't even talk, I can't do anything. I mean, which one of us wants to get in the front? Right? And it's like, okay, and it's like, okay, at first I kind of step out and wait to see who's going to shoot me, and then the horns come. And wouldn't that freak you out? Because you're like, it's like, hey everybody, here I am, shoot me! Right? And okay, and walk, right? And then you come back and you're like, wow, we lived through that one. <clears throat> okay, you guys, we're going to do it again tomorrow. Up early, up early, let's get, let's get ready. Here's again. Are you crazy? Well, it probably looks like it, but I'm trusting God. I'm trusting God because you don't know this yet, but I'm going to wind up in Scripture for this crazy act. Somewhere in all of this, angels are going to read this story as a bedtime story. Right now, when they're flipping through the channels of the world, this is the thing. This is the mini-series that they're watching. Joshua walking around. Then we're like, this doesn't seem very eventful. Obedience is always eventful in the sight of God. And can I just say, that is success in the sight of God, is obedience. Can I say, the greater the obedience, the greater the betrayal of something else to obey God, the greater the victory. But that's where your victory is going to be. It's going to be in this faith you demonstrate. We'll talk about that in a moment. And you're like, can I just get a bunch of big guys and we can just shoot at them or burn the place down? Or can we just do something crazy like that? I mean, you've got a bunch of young guys now that have never really fought, which means they're probably trigger happy, scared to death, don't know what in the world they're doing, and you're going to ask them to march around a city. Which one of you says that now? So we've got some kind of 
opposition, some kind of challenge, and the Lord says, what I really want you guys to do right now is I want you guys to go and pray. Like, then what? God says, why would I tell you the next step until you do the first one I tell you? Like, so I pray. Right? God, I've been fasting to pray. Lord, what is it? God's like, pray some more. And you're like, but you're going to tell me, right? That's like, do you realize what you're doing is obeying me right now? God, I need more information. God says, no, you don't. You don't need more information. And I'm not going to give it to you. Pray. Get on your face and pray. And people are like, so what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are your, what's your answer? And you're like, I'm going to pray. And they're like, well, that's really responsible. Yes, it is. That's what the Lord told me to do. Because you know, people that mean well are always going to challenge those things when you're obeying God. You're aware of that, right? Even Christians. Are you nuts? What's wrong with you? Walk around the city. Now, praise God, we don't have that recorded. And I think that's kindness of God. What do you think? I am, I'm fairly confident somebody has to say something somewhere. So Joshua has to do so. But if you think it's rough for the, for the military men, how do you feel to be one of the priests? And you've got to blow a horn. Hey, even if I didn't think that was an enemy army out there, but you blow a horn early in the morning, I would probably still want to shoot you. You think five, six good shots, we take these guys seven shots, and this thing's going to get quiet because there's seven guys with seven horns. Verse 6 says, Joshua, called, Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priest. That's where he's going to start this thing when he gets it together. Notice that's the first place to go. And can I also say one quick thing on this? That when God calls us to obey, one of the big issues we're going to have to deal with this is that God doesn't just call us to obey for a moment and then think we've been heroic. He calls us to obey here for a week. I remind you on that? By the third day, you have to get up and do this again, and you're wondering, when are they going to shoot us? Do you get used to this? And then you think by the seventh day, you're going to actually have to do this seven times? And that may mean that you're marching around this city. If it's a half-hour march around the city, that's three and a half hours before you fight. And when you run in to go and fight, what do you do if you're one of the trumpet guys? Just start beating people with the horn? You just kind of get back and say, well, I'm done now. I'm going to go sit up here and watch you guys shoot things. He calls the priests and he says to them, Now take up the Ark of the Covenant. Let the seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed and march around the city and let him who was armed advance before the Ark of the Lord. So it was, verse 8, that Joshua had spoken to the people that seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets, and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. Our men also went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and a rear guard came after the Ark, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. So there's a bunch of guys ahead of them, armed. Trumpets are being blown around the Ark, and then a bunch of people behind them as well, guarding both sides. Verse 10 says, Now Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor make any noise with your mouth. Nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, shout. Then you shall shout. And by the way, I really think that this is really part of it. Really an important part of it. Because if you've ever had to work with a bunch of guys, one of the things that you have to tell them is, I don't want any of you turning to the guy next to you and saying, this is the stupidest thing I've ever done. This is crazy. What are we doing? And you just know, if the command was not to be silent here, you know that's what was going to happen. And you know that what that is is doubt. And that doubt is contagious. Now listen, doubt is not a sin. Unbelief is. All doubt is, is the battle between faith and unbelief. Unbelief is saying, I don't trust you, God, on this. Faith says, I trust you, God, on this. And doubt is the battle in between. Maybe you've heard it said that the battle of faith and unbelief is like two dogs fighting, and the one that wins is the one you feed. You see someone and you're like, you know, I, I've just been doubting God lately. I've been struggling with doubt. And you're like, well, what has changed? Who are you hanging out with? Well, that's not important. Yes, it is. What's feeding this? Well, I started watching this program. I started hanging out with these people. I started going back to this thing. And now I've got this doubt. And it's like, you can't even see it, can you? You are starving faith. But you are feeding doubt. 
You are feeding unbelief. And you wonder how that happens. That's like, how much time have you spent in the Word? Well, I haven't had a lot of time in the Word. Well, funny, you have a lot of time to feed unbelief. And we wonder, it's like, hey, listen, how could we possibly be strong as humans if we don't feed properly? And it's like, well, yeah, I'm going to send my child out to battle, but I'm going to starve them first, and I wonder why they're losing. Well, all of the tools, and it tells us, by the way, in Romans, that faith comes by hearing and not the Word of God. You want to stay out of fellowship, you want to get out of the Word, and then you wonder why your faith is weak? Well, I think that that's pretty easy. And all of a sudden, in all of this now, Joshua is getting these priests active, and it's going to take days. And as it takes days in all of this, it says in verse 14 now, they went out continually blue. There was the rear guard came after them. The priests continued blowing. Verse 14, the second day they did the same thing. They marched around the city once and returned to the camp. And so they did for six days. You guys aren't allowed to go and get back in the camp and complain and talk about how crazy the story is of God's. Because in the end of it all, thank the Lord he didn't record that. But we're just like, look at I want you guys trusting with me. I need trusters with me right now. I need trusters. Guys, they're going to say, I don't get it, but I don't have to get it. I trust God. We sang it, but that's not, I mean, that song was written, by the way, without real conscious of any of the challenges we were going to face, perhaps, but understanding this, just knowing we would. And in that, it's like, look at, come what may, you're the Lord. And I know your plan is for our good. And because I know your plan is for our good, I'm just going to trust you. Look at you do no one any favor by freaking out. And maybe you're trying to just show people you're taking it seriously. Often when we freak out, what we're showing is we don't take God as seriously as we do the situation. Like we're an expert in the storm, but we have no real heart knowledge of the storm calmer. So it came to pass on the seventh day. Now, now it's time. Now we've gotten used to just walking around for a half hour, letting the priests blow their trumpets, and just kind of not say anything and going back. And now think about it. After six days, it's become somewhat a habit. Now seventh day comes, and now we have to take this thing to challenge. You guys need to march around this thing seven times, and then you're going to just scream really loud when I tell you. And when you scream really loud when I tell you, the walls are just going to fall down flat. And which one of you doesn't go, <laughs> what? Okay, Sure. Now, do you think there was at least one guy, if not a whole bunch of them, that wanted to say, yes, um, do we have a backup plan? What happens when, I mean, if the walls don't fall down, when we just yell? But he's like, God hasn't told me beyond this. You know why he hasn't told me beyond this? Because I don't need a backup plan in this. It's the Lord telling me. So, came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early, about the dawning of the day, and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. Only that day they marched around the city seven times. And on the seventh time it happened, when the, the priests blew the trumpets, that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now, the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, and all who are in it, except for Rechav the harlot, she shall live, and all who were with her in her house, because she hid the messengers of God. We've already worked this situation out. You saw that a few chapters ago. So you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things. Don't take the accursed things. They are not for you. They're not for you to take. It says, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things, and you make the camp of Israel a curse. Did you get the curse word in there? Trouble it. The word for trouble is the word achad. Can you say achad? Remember that word. That word. That word. That is of the future. That's a little spoiler alert. But all the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron, they're consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. The stuff that seems valuable, it belongs to God. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets. So imagine you're like, okay. Which one of you is the first one to yell? Do you wait for somebody else? Uh, ah! Which one of you? You're like, all right, I think I'll yell. It says, 
people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. And I, I can't figure this part out. How, where in the world, how did Rahab get out of this? I mean, if she lives on the wall, and that's where they're all waiting, and the wall falls down flat, how, did, where, how does this work for them? Somehow in it, did they come out with some scrapes and bumps? I don't really know. Or was it that somehow at this moment, as the wall was about to fall, they, that they crawl out through the scarlet rope? It doesn't really say. Did God just protect them? Did he kind of hold them weightless while the wall fell down flat? I don't know. Because, you know, the cool thing is God doesn't tell us because though we can try to figure it out, the answer really is God took care of it. That's the answer in the end of it. You're like, well, I don't get the details. The guy's like, you don't need to know the details. Apparently, or he would have told us. So the wall fell down flat. Verse 20, it says, Then the people who went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in it, both man, woman, young, old, ox, sheep, donkey, with the edge of the sword. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the country, because they would know whose house this, where this is, go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all that she has, as you swore to her. And the young woman who had been with the spies, who had been, uh, see, the men who had been spies, went in and brought out Rachel, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. Now this girl, if you realize, becomes an evangelist in a doomed city. Man, you're in the house, you're safe. Well, it seems like it was effective. And it's strange because families have a tendency to disown girls that turn into harlots. But somehow in this, this girl somehow pled in such a way so that it's like, Mom, Dad, you got to get here. Bro, you got to get here. Sister, you got to get here. Because when this thing happens, now I wonder for seven days if they ran into the house. When the guys marched around the city, they went, oh. Because they didn't say when. It wasn't like they told Rachav, seventh day, that's it. So what would you do if you were dad? Or brother or sister? You're like, how many days are they going to do this? Is this a drill? What is this going to happen for real? Seventh day happens. I guarantee you they didn't see it. And all of a sudden they're marching around the city seven times. They're like, that's a little weird. A little weirder than their normal weird. So they went and got them all. And every person that was in Rechav's family that she brought into that household that was willing to hear her, even such a woman, she would become an evangelist in an area that would be left to ruin. Interesting, because in John chapter 4, we have a similar situation. A woman that was rejected by her own community at a well at noon, gathering water, having had five husbands, now just living in an area that would have been by the Jewish people becomes an evangelist, tells her entire community that this man told me everything that I've ever done, and they wind up giving their life to Jesus because of a woman that was rejected. And all that to say, in that culture, you couldn't have found somebody more unwanted. So please don't tell me how God couldn't use you, how culturally you've made mistakes, or how you would have been rejected by others, or some people wouldn't have taken you seriously. When God puts a calling on your life, just do it. And don't disqualify yourself because of your past. Just obey. So her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had, she brought them out, the relatives, and or they brought them out, all of her relatives, and left them outside of the camp of Israel. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire, silver, gold, vessels of bronze, and iron they put in the treasury of the house of the Lord. Joshua spared them, Rechav, the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. She dwells in Israel this day because of the messengers whom Joshua sent out to spy Jericho. Important to note, when you read as, we've ha- as we have read, Matthew chapter 1 and the lineage, one of the first things you see is that this woman is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. She not only left Jericho, she became a part of the people of Israel. Joshua charged them at that time saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and rebuilds or builds this city Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. Now it's interesting, that was a promise. Joshua, by the way, he's going to be real brassy in his comments. And by the way, this is one of them. This is the deal. The guy who wants to rebuild this city that's been cursed, 
I want you to know what's going to cost him his firstborn and his youngest. His firstborn, by the way, will be in the foundation, and his youngest will be at the gates. Interesting. So you know that God actually knew how to, to make this clear. If we went then, from this time, roughly 1400 B.C., and moved forward about 600 years to 860 B.C., it is the days of Ahab, Ahab, the king, by the way, of Israel. During that time, it was just before the appearance of Elijah. And it tells us this in 1 Kings 16, verse 34. In the days of Hiel of Bethel, in, in this days, that's the days of Ahab, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. And he laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Serhuv, he set up its gates, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. Exactly like Joshua had said is exactly what came to pass roughly 600 years later. Now, clearly by the end of this we see a great victory. And the victory is a victory where we had to trust God with what didn't make sense. We just had to follow Him and obey. Interesting, by the way, in our battles, by the way, I want to read you a verse. And the verse comes from 1 John chapter 5. And this is what it says in verse 4. Whoever has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. One of the three battles you are going to deal with for the rest of your life here on earth is the battle against the world. So I want to just take the last few minutes of this and develop what that looks like in Scripture. So you need to understand, for the rest of your life, you will battle the world. What does that mean? You against the world? You and God against the world? What does that mean? So let me make some things really clear. And again, don't just believe me like ever. You know, don't just believe me. Search these scriptures. I'll give you a lot of them. And I'm going to do, I'm going to do this quickly but clearly prayerfully. First thing you need to recognize is the earth, obviously, the world, I'm sure this doesn't surprise you, is a location that you live on. But what you may not get is that the world belongs to God. Proverbs, I'm sorry, Psalm 89.11 says, The heavens are yours, the earth is yours, the world and all its fullness. You have founded them. And you'd say, well, that's someone's opinion. That's a psalmist getting all kind of poetic. But this is what God says in Psalm 50, verse 12. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine and all its fullness. God says, this world belongs to me. So some guy stands up and starts telling you that somewhere God gave the world to man... But man handed it over to Satan. You need to know the person who owns this property is God. And Satan never got the ownership of it. He does have influence, and we'll see that in a second. But this property is God's. And the whole book of Revelation is God taking his property back. That's the whole idea of what we see with these judgments. Point two in this, though God owns it, the enemy has influenced people, and they submit to him. In 1 John 5.19, it says that we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway or influence of the wicked one. As a matter of fact, Jesus will say in John 12.31 and in John 14.30, he will call Satan the ruler of this world. He has assumed authority over by this influence, but God owns it. And Satan is a created thing and I understand uh, what's clear in Scripture is Satan is no match. He's no twin brother to Jesus or anything like that. God made him. He knows how to take him out anytime he wants to. Point three, I cannot love this world system under the influence of Satan and love God simultaneously. First John, again, chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world, the system under the influence of Satan, or the things of this world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the, of the Father is not in him. Next verse says, Because everything that's in the world, and he gives us the three ingredients, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful, or the pride of life, are not of the Father, but of the world. Next verse says, And the world is passing away, and the lusts that are in it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. James 4.4 4 says, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wants to make himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Jesus would say in Matthew 16, 26, What would it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? So understand this. Though the world has a system, and the system is driven by three very prominent things. What you see that you want, what you feel that you want, and what makes you important first. He says, those things aren't of God. Those things aren't of the Father. That's the system that you will fight for the rest of your life. The good news is, I was part of that world, you were part of that world, and God so loved us that he sent his only begotten son to die for us, to rescue us from it. That, of course, is John 3.16. Jesus makes clear his kingdom isn't of this world, and that is important because it's completely opposite of a Muslim mindset. It says in John 18.36, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. Does that sound familiar? If this was your world, and this was your kingdom, well, then you would fight to keep it. But Jesus has come and set me free from the world's bondage. John 1.29 tells us that when John pointed them out, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, it takes away the sin of the world. It tells us in John 3.17, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that, through the, the, but that the world through him might be saved. As a matter of fact, in John 4.42, that woman at the well clearly is now to become the evangelist of that area, Sichar in Samaria, the people that have come and met Jesus, and they say, we believe not because of what you've just said, but because now we ourselves have heard him, and we know indeed this is the Christ, the Savior of the world. Not a Savior, but the Savior. In this world, under this world system, there is a bondage under sin and guilt and shame, and Jesus is the cure. So what's the victory? What does this look like? Jesus himself said in John 16, 33, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. In this world, you will have much tribulation. Boy, was he not right with that. In this world, there's going to be turbulence. This isn't going to be an easy place to live. But cheer up. I have overcome the world. How did he overcome the world? He trusted the Father. How do I overcome this world? I trust him. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he that overcomes the world? He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So should we be surprised that the world hates us? Jesus warned us of that in John 15. He said, he hated me, it's going to hate you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. It loves its own. But because you're not of this world anymore... It shows you, shows you out of the out of the world. It hates you. It hates you already. Be warm and still. Now, please hear me on this. If I were to look at the world and I see the way that he's played this out, it's a very simple thing. And in each one of these battles, it's going to relate back to ourselves. Can I say that the issue with the world is self-reliance? That's the point. This is why. This is what fights faith. Because the enemy tries to get you to think if you relied on yourself, you wouldn't have to trust God. Do you realize every religion other than Jesus, that's the point, is trusting yourself. If you prayed enough, if you kissed enough icons, if you went to the right place, crawled up the next steps on your knees, if you, you know, if your great grandma was whatever and you made sure you gave enough money to whatever charity and you did whatever enough, then God's supposed to let you in. Well, then who are you trusting? You're trusting yourself. I'm a good person. Who are you trusting? And Satan loves to get you trusting, and that's his influence. Isn't that what he basically said when he spoke to Eve? He said, look it, God knows if you eat of this, you're going to be like him. You don't have to trust him anymore. You can be your own person now. That's the point. For the rest of our life, faith is going to be a battle of trusting him, not trusting us. That's the whole point. What gets us from one place to the other? What gets us, what rescues us from this world's dominion into the arms of God? The gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul says about the gospel in Romans 1. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the righteousness of God to anyone who reveals. Righteousness means this is what makes you right with God. Because in it, 
the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now, some would like to say what that means is you have faith, but he's going to give you more faith. But that's not going from faith to another faith. See, the whole point of Romans is you are going from a faith in yourself to a faith in Jesus. A faith in yourself is, I go and keep the law, I pray enough, I read enough, I've studied this, I've memorized this, I have degrees in divinity. It's all about trusting yourself. And he goes, what the gospel says is, you leave trusting yourself behind, and now you go to trusting Jesus. That's where the victory is. And this is why the world looks at you like you're an idiot. Because they're still trying to trust themselves. And they look at you and you have peace. Now, if we're going to be right and honest with ourselves, <coughs> we'd have to recognize that nobody's made worse decisions for us than us. I mean, if we were to lay out the people to trust, and we looked and we actually honestly observed ourselves from outside of ourselves, the choices we've made and the damages we carry, the scars we bear, because of the choices we made, we would look and go, what's wrong with me? Why would I trust that person? The choices they make hurt me. But the enemy says, oh, Bruno, trust in yourself. Don't you? I mean, how many times do you have to hear it from Disney? You've got to trust your own heart, man. You've got to believe in yourself. You know, Solomon would say, you know, actually, whoever trusts his heart's a fool. Whoever follows his heart is a fool. Jeremiah says, because your heart's desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. All things? My heart's more deceitful than Satan. All things. I don't like that. So I have to trust him. And I will never be able to display my trust without two very distinct things. One is it has to override my natural trust for other things. My strength, my mind, my logic, my whatever. Normally those things that are in my cash that are, you know, that I, or, or, that I think are my strengths. But also the other thing is time. And that's, that's a rough one. Because the guy was just like, trust me, do this little thing once. Maybe I think I do it. And I'm like, all right, cool. We're, we're good, right? The guy's like, how about when he's like, I need you to trust me through this season. And you're like, oh. You know what I've learned? We've obviously been in a season of challenge. And it's been, to be honest, I'm getting so excited. Because I have the opportunity to display this for you. But it's not just me. There are many of us in these challenging moments where the issue is, what do I want to do? Do I want to fight? Do I want to, or do I want to get on my face and say, Lord, it doesn't have to make sense, but please, all I ask is, would you speak to me clearly? So the issue will not be an issue of, of understanding. It will be an issue of obedience now. And look at Many of us are aware, not all of us, if we're honest enough, there are times where God has made something really clear, but we've pretended like we didn't understand, so we can disobey. We're like, God, you need to make it clear. And God says, no, I don't. You and I both know this. Now let's just get busy doing it. But what we're saying is, I don't understand. If God parted the sky and wrote it there, you would still say, that's a strange coincidence. But God, I need you to speak. And here's our point. In the first battle, it is going to involve other people. It is going to involve time. It is going to involve us being weak, admitting our defeat without God in the situation. It's going to humiliate us if we don't keep our eyes on Jesus. It's going to freak us out if we don't keep our eyes on Jesus. It's going to, and, and there are people who love you that will get your eyes off of Jesus and they're like, you're a little less aware of the circumstances. Perhaps you're a little less aware of, you know, it's like, you know, it isn't that I haven't surmised the situation, but I want to be intimately, infinitely more familiar with Jesus than I am the problem. Because I really do know that if I'm actually listening, I'll do what he called me to. And that's the best thing that can happen. You're like, but what if this or this happens? It's like, you know what, that's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to hear and obey. That's what I'm called to do. But then time becomes a real monster to us, doesn't it? Have you ever told God, God, you've got till this time for this to happen? I wonder how many times God chuckles when we start telling him his limitations. Imagine, hey, my, my brother's desperately ill. Jesus, you've got to come now. Come on, he's your best friend, man. Come on, he's like one of your better friends. He's a BFF, man. 
And what we read in, in John, by the way, chapters 10 and 11, what we read in chapter 11 is that Jesus, because he loved them, he waited. Can you put those two things together in your own head? Like, God, if you loved me, you wouldn't be waiting. You'd be doing this right now, before the storm got bigger, before my brother dies. <clears throat> Jesus is like, I love you enough to make it impossible without me. So that people go, who is this that the wind and waves obey? Wow, he even raises the dead. After he's stinking four days. And I love the fact that my God so clearly doesn't have impossible, or even for that matter, difficult in his vocabulary, except when I bring it into the conversation. It isn't like, God, this is rough, huh? This is tough. That's like on you. I mean, imagine it would have been rough to watch his son. But the strange Isaiah says it even pleased him to lose his son. Because he knew what he would get for it with us. Hey, look at this. We go to prayer. <clears throat> and now it's time for that. What battles of trust are in you right now? What areas are you more familiar with the battle? Where can you hear the bullets fly by quicker or clearer than God's voice? Where are you tempted to speed up more because of a situation? Hey, there are times where God will say, you know, I mean, you build within a spite and flight for a reason. There are times where God will tell us, oh, it's time to get up and run. There are other times where God will say, be still and know that I'm God. And by the way, if God has to tell you to be still, it's pretty likely you would not want to be still or he wouldn't have to tell you but he never just says, be still. He said, be still and know that I'm God. He says, be still to the waves. But to you, he's like, be still, because I need you to know I'm God. I'm not just a well-meaning person. I'm almighty here. And let's face it, can I just say this as we get prepared to pray? Please hear me as we wrap this. There are two things that I need to display faith in regards to God. One, his power. Second, his personality. If I really do believe, and I do, by the way, that God is Almighty, the question is never, was this going to be a problem for me? God, is this going to be a problem for you to deal with this? But the government seems like this, or but the money seems like this, or but the situation seems like this. Oh my goodness, look at how many other people have fallen before in similar circumstances. And God is like, I can, I, but, but you're, you're Almighty. I, if I recognize you're Almighty... Does it really matter how big the problem is as long as I know you've got to handle it? That's normally not where our faith struggles. It's in his personality. The issue isn't God could you, it's would you. Would you really step in? I mean, I know your word says this. Have you ever read scripture and you were convinced this applied to everyone but you? I'm not talking about a sin, where it's like, because, well, I'll get that. Pastor Tony, I know that it says in Scripture this isn't what to do, but if you only heard my case, is if God's like, well, wow, I didn't see that one coming. I should have wrote that in. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about where it's like, you know, I know that it says things like, train up a child in the ways of the Lord, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. But, but I, I just I can't see right now how that's going to happen. And God's like, that's why I said when they're old. They're not old yet for a reason. I need you to trust me. What's your part? Train your children in the ways of the Lord. That's the part that I'm, that's what I'm responsible for. I need to obey that. The rest of it, God's like, that's my responsibility. Oh, listen, I've preached the gospel. I want to share the simple truth. Jesus died on the cross for your sin and mine, just like Scripture promised. He was buried. He literally rose again just as Scripture promised. That's the power of salvation. God says, yeah, you know what the enemy says? But now you need to rely on yourself. You know how you rely on yourself? Let me show you how to argue that. Let me show you how you need to make sure you can put the logic in it. Let me show you how... Now look, at it isn't like those things are bad per se unless you're relying on yourself and not relying on the gospel. But the moment you are relying, the moment your trust is in yourself... That's why people will do it, because they're afraid they'll fail. And the, the crazy part is we fail because we don't obey God with the simple things. Like, but I don't feel equipped. God's like, what? For the gospel? If you don't know the gospel, how do you know you're saved? But you're like, but I can't argue with it. And I can't bring in, you know, I can't do these fancy things. And God says, I didn't make you that way for a reason. 
I'm asking you to obey, not understand. But, but if I just didn't do enough of this, but I'm, I'm weak. And God's like, like, that surprises me. But I struggle. God's like, that, that, that's no surprise to me. How about if our focus was, Lord, I just want to trust you enough to obey you, whether it makes sense or not. Could you imagine what would happen? But what happens? We would see victory over the world because the world says, "Don't you think you need to take this back?" And you'll, isn't that exactly the temptation in the garden? I'm sorry, in the wilderness. In the wilderness, we're saying, "Like you know, hey, so if you're the son of God, I mean, come on, you're God in the flesh, right? So if you're God in the flesh, turn this stone to bread." And his his answer, of course, we know it is, "Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God." We get that, but understand what he's saying is, "Hey, look at, I may have the power, but I'm not going to do it unless God gave it to me." I'm not going to say it unless God tells me. And he says, I always do what pleases him. I only say what the Father tells me to say. Could you imagine saying that? He's like, look, at, I can take it back, but I'm not going to because I trust the Father. And if that means I die of starvation here, then I die of starvation. He's the one who's going to have to feed me. Kingdoms, it's not for me to bow down to you to get them. I'm going to trust the Father's route. I'm not going to take the matters into my own hands and say, here's a quick way to get this. I'm going to trust you, Father, with that instead, so you can grant that to me. It's yours to give, not his. Throw myself off and show off so that people can see how important I really am. To see what God's really called me to be. That's your job, Father. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to demand for you to do it my way. I'm not going to take that back. I handed it to you. I'm not going to take it back. Interesting, because those are the same three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. It's the same three things. He said, you know, I gave it to you, Father. It's your job to fulfill. It's your job to put what's right in this. These are appetites. You fulfill them the way you intend them. So listen, as we go to prayer, what battles are you fighting right now? What are the things that you're like, it doesn't make sense, but it just seems so huge. It's dragging on longer than I anticipated. This seems impossible. What are your things? Could you imagine what would happen if we actually walked out of here free? Not because the circumstance necessarily changed outside, but it changed where it needed to with our trust. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for your scripture. Thank you, Lord, that in this first battle we face against the world, it's a battle over our trust. The victory is in our faith. And because the victory is in our faith, that's what we want to do. We want to trust you. We don't want to rely on ourselves. We want to rely on you. The power that even any power we have in us is what you gave us always. And we do expect that we do not have the strength to save ourselves. If we're spiritually dead, we can't make ourselves alive. Dead people don't grab defibrillators and recharge themselves. <clears throat> Lord, we recognize it started the whole beginning. Of our salvation began with the recognition that we cannot save ourselves. But Jesus, you died on the cross to pay our price, rose again from the grave, <clears throat> so that we could be <clears throat> given brand new life. <clears throat> there will never be something we earn. Grace is something because you're kind, because you love us, not because we'll ever deserve it. And because of it, it isn't about anything we've had to rely on ourselves for. You've given us a choice and we say yes. That is because you've been kind enough to even give us the choice at all. So Lord, I pray even right now for each one of us. First of all, that as we cry out, Jesus, yes, you are my Lord and Savior. I've accepted your gift. I say yes to your gift. I say yes to your resurrection and the new life you have for me. Let me, please let me trust you. But as we say yes, Lord... We recognize it's a life of yes. And that life of yes is going is to cross over all kinds of boundaries of time and challenges and, and logic and all kinds of other things. And we recognize tonight here that there are battles being fought in our hearts and minds. Battles because we don't understand. Battles because it's dragging on. Battles because we feel weak. We feel challenged. And Lord, it is so natural for us to just kind of try to take things into our own experience, our own strength, our own whatever. But Lord, first and foremost, we want to get on our faces and say, Lord, this is your victory. You've never lost. You're certainly, you've never made a mistake. And you certainly will not start now. So Lord, please strengthen our faith in you. Even as your word has gone forth tonight, strengthen our faith in you. But Lord, whatever it is, if it's what you want, it's best. 
And your plans for us are to give us a future and a hope. They're not to curse us. They're not for our evil or for our harm. But they are for our blessing. They are for, Lord, to give us a future and a hope. To use us to permanently impact eternity. So, Lord, the things we may lay out and say, Lord, please give me this and please take me here. We certainly can lay those out, but we recognize your will will always be best. You've never made a decision against us for the purpose of our destruction. If we've done things to damage us because we've made those choices, we've relied on ourselves instead of you. So tonight, Lord, we just want to tell you again, we trust you. And in that, Lord, make us people who do genuinely trust you the way you call us to. Lord, for those who are enduring right now something that's lasted through time, give us the endurance that is necessary to trust you through the season, however long that season would be. For those, Lord, that are being challenged right now because there are things that just seem so beyond their strength, remind us that where we're weak, you're strong. And your grace is sufficient. So Lord, our eyes are on you. Lead us now, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, I just pray as well right now that if there be any who today, as much as they hear that, they just think, yeah, but overcome that before they leave tonight. That they would walk out of here saying, Lord, you know what? You're right. You are bigger. You're not just bigger and almighty, but you're also more involved in your personality is one greater than that. For I know, Lord, that you step in when you know us best, and you're not going to let me die on the vine again. I trust you in this. Jesus' name.